We're going to begin today by taking a little trip to downtown Thessalonica, first century. What is now Greece was then part of Macedonia. It's a Friday morning, and there's a bit of a crowd gathering at the shrine of Dionysius, the Greek god of wine. And as the crowd gathers, as they wait for the sacrifices to be offered, there's a bit of a a murmur, a bit of a stir in the crowd. And one person turns to the other and says, it's a bit quiet this morning, isn't it? The other person replies, yeah, yeah, it is a bit. I wonder what's going on. Haven't you noticed that uh, the banker's wife's not here? Yeah, maybe she's ill. No, I don't think so, because the mayor's wife, she's not here either. Nor Mrs. Giannacopoulos of a big house on the river. She, she's not here either. Seems to be loads missing. And then somebody else pipes up a couple of rows back. Haven't you heard? They're not coming. They are some of those that got caught up with that Jewish Christ guy. They say they don't need to come here anymore. They're not coming back at all. They say they've found the true God now. Now, I've imagined that scenario. But it seems entirely probable that events like this were taking place after the good news about Jesus came to Thessalonica through the Apostle Paul. We're into the third week of looking at the the impact, the powerful impact and the output, if you like, that this good news message about Jesus makes on a person and on a people. You see, it's not just a message. Its impact is dynamic and public. It's not static and private. Today, as we listen in to more of Paul's encouragement written to these men and women about the the sureness of their faith as he sees it, as he has heard about it, we're going to see more of the, the outward and the ongoing change that this gospel message makes in the lives of the people who hear it and believe it. We're going to turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to look that up now, it's fairly near the back. If you get to Timothy, you're close, you've gone a little bit too far. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We're going to focus in this afternoon on those last couple of verses. And we're going to think about these three actions that Paul describes, these heard about, 
It's one of those little quirky things where he says, I don't need to talk to you about this, and then talks about it. Here you see. Three things. Turning. Serving. And waiting. And our first point is this. It's about starting out with Jesus. And it's both yes and no. So the report has gone out and has come back to Paul about the change that has taken place in this people. Amongst this group of Greeks and Jews and prominent women that make up the church in Thessalonica. They have turned to God from idols. And the question is, first question is to say, well, what are idols? And that's why we just read Psalm 115. That description of what idols are, things made by human hands. Here's another couple of, dis- uh, of um, <coughs> excuse me, definitions for you. Simply, idols are substitute gods. Or, or to build on the idea slightly, idols demand an allegiance which is due to God alone. Idols are things which we worship, which we give to in terms of our time, in terms of our money, in terms of our allegiance, in terms of our hearts. What are we for? What are we thinking about? What do we want? We're told that Paul's heard and everybody's heard that the Thessalonians have turned from idols. They have moved their worship from the gods of the day to the God of the Bible and to the God, well, the God of the gospel that we've already thought about and will continue to think about as we, we go through this letter together. Now, in their day, if we look, go back to first century Thessalonica, it could have been Greek gods like Dionysus that we've just mentioned, or it could have been the, the Roman gods. There's archaeological evidence that there were Egyptian god cults taking place in Thessalonica around that time. But what does it look like to to worship these gods? What does worship of, of idols look like? Well, yes, it's statues and images. But all those statues and those images and those gods, and if you're familiar with mythology, you'll be aware of, of maybe the Greek gods or the Roman gods. All of these gods had a particular area of interest. A thing that they were in charge of or in control of. Something that they could, some feature that they could bring. Something that they could do for you. So there were gods of war, there were gods of harvest, gods of wine, gods of beauty. And it's often these designations attached to these gods that give us the clue as to what people truly worship. People worship power. People worship success. People worship comfort. People worship popularity. People worship wealth. And it's very easy to look in on somebody else and to say, certainly another culture, and go, well, you worship that. These are your gods, whether you've given them a name and whether you've made a statue or not, this is what you worship. But, but what about us? As far as I'm aware, none of us have, have been down a, a, a temple this afternoon to worship another god. And if we look around at our culture, 
actually were becoming in, in many ways less religious. How do we spot our idols as a culture? How do we spot our idols as individuals? Here's some questions for you to, to mull on. What do you daydream about? When you've got that moment, maybe it's in the middle of class, or maybe it's a quiet spot in work, maybe it's a busy spot in work, you're just not doing any. What are you daydreaming about? What do you invest your time and money in? What is motivating you, driving you? What if it was taken away or lost, would cause you to give up on life? And here's another question. What if we asked other people about us, individually or corporately, and we asked other Christians, maybe from a different culture to ours, What if we ask them about what encourages them about us and what might really, you know, maybe even horrify them about us, about what we do, about what we live for, about what we're motivated by? At the start of the Christian life, there is a turning away from idols. There is a recognition that the idols do not bring what they promise to give. And so it's a no. No to that, but it's also a yes. Do you see that? They tell how you turn to God from idols. It's a no to idols, but it's a yes to God. Christianity is not simply a turning away from bad things. It's not, we can't say, I'm a Christian because I don't get drunk, or because I don't break the law, or because I don't have sex before marriage. And conversely, we can't even say, I'm a Christian because I do good things, I give to charity because I'm nice to old ladies as they cross the road. No, it's a turning from the bad but it's not just a turning to better it's a turning to God the Bible paints the picture of the need not just for the lack of the bad but for the possession and not even of the good but of the best think of it like this think of it when it comes to supporting a a, a sports team let's call it a football team It's not just that you don't cheer for the opposition, but it's that you do cheer for your team. Or think of it in terms of marriage. To be faithful in marriage, it's not enough not just to to, to not be intimate with other people. But you have to show intimacy to your spouse, to love your spouse. Faithfulness is not just the the absence of misbehaviour, but it's the the positive of loving that person. And as we listen in to Paul, as he hears about the, the change in this people, we see both. Both the no and the yes. 
And it's a theme throughout the Bible that we are to turn from idols and to God. Jeremiah chapter 2 paints the the reverse picture as God speaks to his people about their, their sin. And he says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's the inverse of the Thessalonians. But you notice it's two. God doesn't say it's, it's just this one. We, we cram this together. But God says there are two distinct things here. To not love me. To not serve me. To not delight in all my beauty and grandeur and trust in my plan. But then also to, to love and to choose other, lesser, more wicked things. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this passage, says, Indeed, in every age it is a mark of the true Christian that he has turned from contemporary idols. And that's true. But it is also the mark of the true Christian that they have turned from idols and turned to God. Let's just pause there and just think about the Christian life. And maybe for some of us, when we come to the Christian life, we mark it, how well we're doing simply by saying how am I doing that one area of battle with sin and we say I'm a success because I'm winning that battle with pride or with gossip but it's not enough just to turn away instead we have to turn to God true repentance and true conversion is marked by Say no to sin and yes to God. And believing God when he speaks to us through his son. It's rejecting the false premises and the false promises of sin. And trusting in the true promises of God. So as we think about our lives and our struggles and those habitual sins... The way to fight them is not just to say no, but it's also to look and turn to God. This is how they started. But it doesn't stop there. The overall title for this message is about not just a face. And this sermon today falls on the 31st of October, what's known in some areas of the church as Reformation Day. The Reformation took place, started 500 years ago, 504 years ago today. We want to think now about the ongoing nature of the the Christian life. And as we travel back 504 years to the opening event that changed the nature of the church, that brings us to this place where as we turn to God, we do so in the back of a, a church that has recaptured the power and the wonder of the gospel. We go back to Germany in a little town called Wittenberg. And a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, who was teaching at the lecturing at the university there in Wittenberg, And one morning, on the 31st of October, he 
went down to the church and nailed a list of proposals, arguments about the state of the church and the the nature of, of truth and theology. And on the 31st of October, the first one that he'd written down said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, repent, intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant penance or repentance. The whole of the Christian life should be one of ongoing repentance. You see, as we look at the church in Thessalonica, we see that they started with this turning. That's what repentance is. Turning from sin to God. And what Martin Luther, in the the first of these 95 theses, and we won't go into the entire history, but he starts with this simple truth about the nature of, of living a Christian life. We have to keep turning to God. The fourth thesis says, Therefore, mortification, putting sin to death, continues as long as hatred of oneself continues. That is to say, true inward repentance lasts until entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He says, as long as we continue to recognize in ourselves that we are not all that we ought to be, we will need to continue to turn again and again to God and seek his forgiveness and find his forgiveness. You see, the Christian life doesn't just stand on one moment, one decision, but it's an ongoing process. So let's turn back to the Thessalonian church and see what continuing with Jesus looks like. Serving and waiting, posture and patience. Notice that the text seems to doubly point out the importance of turning to God. He almost needlessly repeats it, doesn't he? They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's like an idol sandwich. With God either side. It's like trying to bring it home. Don't miss the main point that this is about turning Godwards in your hearts and lives. And they have been. When God the Spirit enters in to his people. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. That the Holy Spirit comes. He empowers the people to turn from idols. But then he doesn't say, now go and do as you please. But no, he leads them to to serve God, the living and true God. And that description is he's putting it opposed to idols. So we could go back to Psalm 115 and, and hear that description about these idols that have eyes but can't see, have ears but can't hear, have noses but can't smell. They look alive, but they are dead. In contrast... They have turned to serve the living and true God. They lie about what they can deliver, these idols. They say, if you're wealthy, if you're powerful, if you're in control, then you'll be happy, then you'll be content. And they lie. Because the experience of every person who's walked this planet is that there's never enough. 
There's never enough wealth. There's never enough satisfaction. There's never enough comfort. There's always doubt and fear. But God, God is true in his character, in his word, in his promises. And so, continuing with Jesus is about posture. They serve God. And I wonder at that point whether some of you are thinking, that's not a very attractive sales pitch. Get rid of these idols that you've been worshipping and instead come and bow down before God. That doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound like life. But it depends on what we were made for, doesn't it? What if we were not meant to be kings, but to be servants? What if, if we could even be king, what would we make of it? What would happen to us if we had the power, the wealth that we so desire? Well, just look at the evidence of what happens when we're in charge of little things so often. We fail or it goes to our heads. They are drawn to serve the living and true God. Let me come at this another way. Is there a more attractive quality and characteristic in other people than humility? We delight, don't we, when rich and famous people put aside their status and their stature for the sake of serving other people. Whether that's pop stars visiting sick children in hospital or sports stars who take all the time and effort to sign autographs after a game up to hours afterwards. We see it and we recognise it and we, we go, wow, that's, that's attractive. I, I would, I'd love to meet him. They, I'd love to meet her because they seem, they seem genuine. There's an attractiveness about humility. But none of us naturally want to be humble. To serve other people is, is wonderfully attractive. But it's also wonderfully rewarding. I think most parents know something of this. Imperfect though we are, we know what it is to, to serve our children when they are needy and when they are undeserving. To be honest, this might not be the day to, to remind you of that. As, you know, many parents have been up since five this morning, you know, for the extra hour. I'm glad some of you had an extra hour in bed. Well done. But to serve other people and to see them benefit from our service is rewarding. We recognize that in our good moments. So to take the posture of humility before the true God who has rescued us from false worship, from futile worship, is, is wonderful. And it's rewarding and it's even attractive if we can only just get out of our own way. But more than all that, to serve God, to be humble before God is fitting. It is fitting because the God that we are called to serve is living and true and has shown us that in Jesus. 
We have the opportunity to serve the God who first served us. Because that's the question, isn't it? It's not will we serve, it's what will we serve? Or who will we serve? Will we serve that which enslaves us, which belittles us, which traps us? Or will we serve the God who has served us? Jesus said, Mark 10, verse 45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is utterly fitting to serve a God who unbelievably, who wonderfully served us. When Jesus came and stepped into this world with all of its suffering, with all of its brokenness, to a creation and to creatures that he made and formed, and then who rejected him and turned on him and failed him, and yet he came out of love for us and served us. How fitting is it for us then to serve him? To be humble servants before God. That's attractive. It's rewarding and it's fitting. So REC, will you bow down before that God? Will you serve him? Who are you living for this week? Whose agenda are you following? Whose glory are you seeking? The Thessalonian church, they turned and they served. But they also waited. So our final point, continuing with Jesus, patience. This is the final thought of this opening salvo of Paul to the church. And this is the first of many times that he's going to remind them, his original hearers, and remind us as readers today of a unique season we're in. I think today marks the, you know, the f- proper countdown to, to Christmas, doesn't it? You know, the shops tomorrow, all the Halloween stuff will be gone and Christmas will be in full-blown yeah, whirlwind. Eight weeks from yesterday. But Paul reminds them of a greater season, a more important season. The season that is marked by the gap between the first coming of Jesus into this world and when Jesus will return. They waited for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They were able to look out into their circumstances and recognize that this is not the end. That there is an end, a final end that is coming when Jesus will return. And so they are waiting. And the, the words here described not a, a passive, well that might come to happen at some point. But an active looking and hoping for and longing for Christ to return. 
And as he speaks this truth about their waiting, I think what Paul does here is answer some of the questions that we might have in this in-between time where Christ has come and we have been saved as we have trusted in Jesus. But we're also waiting. We're also living in a world that is so incomplete, so full of frustration. Jesus is king and yet many turn away from him. Jesus is Lord over every person and every situation and yet there is so much hardship and suffering and we're waiting for Jesus to return and to make all things new. And so we're waiting and we're looking to God. And as we read these verses, some of the questions might be, well, what sort of God is he? Well, he's a powerful God. For he raised Jesus from the dead. And what sort of service is it that we're we're called to? Well, hopeful. Hopeful because Jesus is going to return. And so as we serve him, our efforts, however small and little they might be, are never wasted. Christ is coming back to be with his people. And what sort of outcome? As we deal with even just our own hearts and the ongoing need for repentance as we sin, as our eyes stray. So many of us are that, you know, the, the meme that you see on the internet of the guy with his girlfriend, hand in his girlfriend's hand, but he's looking at another girl over his shoulder. That's what we're like. We love God and, and yet we're kind of always looking around, tempted and, and failing. What sort of outcome is there? Jesus is coming back. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The rightful wrath of God against all those who have not worshipped him. And instead worshipped lesser, lesser gods. False gods. Gods that are not even alive. God will do what is right. God will reward, if that's the right word, the actions of every man and woman and boy and girl who who have turned against him. Who have turned to other gods and sought what God only can give. Who, in the words of Jeremiah, have turned their back on the fountain of living water And instead have sought to make their own gods. And they've made broken cisterns that that don't even hold water for very long at all. But Jesus is coming back. The one who rescues us from the coming wrath. There will be no wrath for all those who have turned to God and have trusted in Christ. No. Wrath. Though we deserve it. Though we deserve it. And so our waiting is hopeful. When Jesus returns, because of his life, because of his death, that day will be glorious and joyful and wonderful. And so, REC, we must learn from the Thessalonians and continue to wait actively wait for Jesus and one of the ways that we do that 
and we'll be doing it on Tuesday evenings, that we, we take the meal that Jesus gave to us. And we say those words that we are proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again. And we remind ourselves about what Christ has done for us. And we remind each other that Jesus is coming back. That this world is not all that there is. And we ought to remind each other when we, we begin to take this life just a little bit too seriously. And we ought to have that in mind as we see into our own lives and each other's lives about the idols that we are tempted to worship. Power. Comfort. Let's finish by spending some time just examining our own hearts. Maybe even this afternoon, God has, has been pushed on your heart about things that you are worshipping that are not him. Let us take heed of Martin Luther and spend some time turning from those things and turning back to God. We'll have just a minute silence to reflect and then I'll lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing. one of the hymns that we sing has the words prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love and Father we confess we say with our, our mouths and we say with our hearts Lord we we have loved other gods we have sought in other places what only you can bring Lord, because sometimes it seemed easier or quicker. Or because we want the glory, not you. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We offer up our hearts, our lives. And we pray, Lord, that knowing that you are faithful to forgive because of the Lord Jesus... Lord, that you would draw us this week to serve you. As we look ahead to the return of Christ, whenever that will be, Father, help us to joyfully serve you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.